What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of identity, books, and writing. First, we'll be speaking with Dewan Combs about helping students to find their identities as readers. Next, we'll talk with Kathy Newton about some of her favorite books. Our last guest will be Andrea Davis Pinckney, and we'll talk about how she became an author. Before we leave you, I'll be stepping around the librarian's table with fellow librarians from around Utah. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Casey at the Bat by Ernest Thayer, and we'll hear from some BYU students about their lives as elementary students. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's In my children's literature classes, I teach my students about genres. I tell them that we categorize works of literature into groups of the same style or content. Most people are pretty familiar with genres like fantasy, science fiction, mystery, romance, horror, and adventure. We also talk about the genres of realistic fiction and historical fiction. Each of these genres generally have their own conventions that loosely govern where an author might set a story or who can populate that story or even what events make up the plot. As readers, we often rely on genres to help us pick books or even reject books. I have students all the time who say, I love a great mystery, and others who say they dislike reading science fiction. Children are the same. They also pay attention to genre to select and eliminate books from their reading repertoire. All of this is well and good, but it's becoming even more tricky in today's publishing market because one of the biggest trends we see today is that authors are blending genres. Today, it's getting harder and harder to classify books against one strict genre. For example, Rebecca Stead's award-winning book, When You Reach Me, has a very realistic New York setting. The plot is structured around a mystery, but at the same time, it also embraces concepts of time travel, making it more science fiction. So what is it? Realistic, mystery, or science fiction? Well, the reality is that it's all three, and it's likely that it will appeal to readers that would select any of these genres to read. For me, as a recommender of books, this is a great trend because it allows me to find more connections to more books for more readers. And it also allows me to maybe introduce a genre convention to a reader who may have rejected it before. So even though readers may not like science fiction, those elements are skillfully added to the mystery and realism in When You Reach Me. So there certainly can become connections there that may not have been there if the book was just pure science fiction. So here at Rachel's World, we are excited to look for great books that blend the genres so all readers can find the perfect book just for them. Rachel's World. Humans are very dynamic beings. From the beginning, we change, evolve, learn, and explore. We begin forming our identities at a very early age, and many things, including education, can shape them. Today, we're in studio with Dewan Combs, an English professor here at BYU, to explore reading identity. 
Welcome, Dwan. Thank you. To start out, let's talk a little bit about what does what does an identity as a reader or identity as a literacy person, particularly for adolescents who are struggling, what role does that play in their ability or context of their literacy needs? So I think that um, when we talk about identity, sometimes it means a lot of different things. But if you think about what you do, um, what you do well, what you do poorly, all of these things are often linked to who we are. And that's kind of our identity, how we um, perceive ourselves, how other people perceive us, and then how we think people are perceiving us. And so we live in a really text-based society, and the ability to read is really foundational to everything that we do. And so um, we want students to be able to make informed choices based on their ability to comprehend and understand information, not just listening to the opinions of others. But when you think about kids that are in school, whether they're little kids or adolescents, if they are in school and they struggle as readers, they spend five to seven hours a day in a space 180 days a year doing something that they don't do well. And that really influences how they begin to see themselves as students, as literate people. And so in addition to all the academic repercussions, it really influences how they see themselves and how they interact with text in the world and people too. I think that's really important to remember because that impacts so many other things. And particularly when we're focusing on adolescents, one of the things they're trying to do is find information from other sources and to build their own identities and their futures in a very fundamental way. So they're asking some really critical questions about themselves and the world around them at a, at a juncture that they are going to have to make their own decisions and that they may not have as much support or feedback from adults going into this. And so to me, that timing of this becomes even more critical when we talk about adolescents, particularly not having that sense of strength in this area. Yeah. And I mean, adolescence is really where our identities um, start to kind of take shape. And we look outside beyond just our family to other things to make sense of that. But a lot of the core identities we develop as children influence what we do in terms of our adolescence. And so when you think about these early literacy experiences that kids have, those are so foundational to to who they become and the adolescents that we see in our classrooms and in our homes because they don't just like all of a sudden decide they don't want to be readers, but it's kind of the accumulation of all of these experiences they've had before that that kind of lead them to a place or one big, a couple of big experiences that kind of change or shift the way they think about themselves. So let's let's kind of start at the beginning then. Okay. How do we prevent that from happening, right? How might we do that, particularly at a younger age, to make sure that there's positive literacy experiences so we don't later on in the teen years have this negative identity? Yeah, I think that's a tricky question because I don't think anyone purposely tries to make a student feel in a negative way towards reading. But you think about most of the the college students that I work with, um, and I'll interview about this, they can all trace it back. I mean, they don't realize they're tracing it back to. But when I, I talk to them about, well, where does this reader identity develop? Or how, how are you thinking about yourself as a reader? And where does that come from? They talk about being in elementary school and the librarian or the teacher telling them they have to check out kindergarten books, even though they're in third grade, because they're not reading at this level they think they should be reading. And that 
I mean, they don't want to be perceived as poor readers around their classmates, but they internalize that or people that will laugh at them as they're reading out loud. And some people can just brush it off. But if you're someone who's struggled with reading, um, these are hard things for you. And and so it really shapes the way you see yourself. And I mean, these are successful individuals that are in college doing well, but they still kind of trace, they, they still go back to those identities. And so they have a hard time sometimes moving beyond that. So I think to answer your question, it's being aware of those things, even when students are little, because that can shape who they become later. So as we become aware of these things, what can we do to change it? Because I think you're right. We don't set out to say, oh, yes, we are going to undermine students' abilities to be Mm -hmm. a reader. right? I don't think we do that as parents or teachers. But there are these really simple things that we do, in all honesty, that are kind of integral parts of the way we approach education that often provide these really negative experiences and for more more students than I think we would give it credit for. So so how do we become aware of these types of things? So um, psychologist, I think her name's Carol Dweck, she talks a lot about mindset. And I like to think about her work in terms of what that means for struggling readers because she talked about the importance of separating actions the things that we do from labels the you know that we're going to assume um, because these labels can become fixed identities that we can't move past. So maybe helping them see that these identities aren't fixed. Like just because you struggle as a kid doesn't mean that you're going to keep struggling. Or helping them see that actually if you're an adolescent that struggles as a reader and you've made it to the 11th grade with nobody knowing, you must be pretty smart because you fooled all of these teachers, right? Even if they just didn't have time to address it, like you were still able to get here. And so you are smart in some ways, but it's helping them realize that they can learn those skills. It's not just, oh, I either have this or I don't have it, but you can learn these things. And a lot of uh, their experience is not um, dissimilar from a lot of other people. Like, they're not the only ones that are there. Yeah, I I Um, love that sense of seeing other people too, right? Because mm -hmm. I think oftentimes part of the problem that I see here is that sometimes struggling readers think that they're the only ones that are struggling. Right. And so opening that sense to helping them say, this is something that's broader and everybody has their own struggles. They may not be my exact struggles, but everybody struggles in some way mm-hmm. with something makes makes a more community-oriented sense of that. And I think with adolescents, particularly that community and building that strength of identity within a community is a great way to address these kinds of things. Would you agree? Yeah, I think if you can create a space in your classroom or in your family or the group that, you know, whatever group it is that you're engaging in these activities where it's safe to take risks and it's okay to not succeed on the first try, that goes a long way to helping students realize that, oh, I can make mistakes when I'm learning and it's not going to define who I am. And even a lot of kids who maybe have positive reader identities, they don't see themselves as people who need to develop more skills. And so they stop themselves from learning because they, they think, again, that reading and reading skills are like, I, I have those skills, so I don't need to continue to develop them anymore. But even as we become adults, we always need to develop new skills to read new in new um, contexts and new materials. And so helping kids realize that this is an ongoing thing, I think, is also really helpful. I really like that sense of ongoing because, again, I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, you can decode, you can 
Right. Take the words and you're good. (laughs) But it really is about these skills. Uh And particularly, I think those are the things that develop our identity is our skills as a reader. So there's definitely the decoding skills, the the phonetical skills that we're looking at. But what are some of those other skills that we might identify as, you know, negatives if we were giving ourselves a reader identity? Yeah. Well, I think that sometimes students that struggle, they think that all the answers are in the text. And if they can't find them, then they're the one that has the problem. But we know that not all things that are published are not created equal, right? And so strong readers look at a text and sometimes they can realize, oh, well, it doesn't have this information. I need to go to another source. Or this author has missed this whole body of information. But struggling readers think, oh, well, I'm just not smart enough to get it. And so helping them realize that text should be challenged, text should be questioned, is something that's really valuable. And I think even, too, um, part of what makes us enjoy reading is not not all the time, but sometimes we want to see ourselves in a text. And so if we're not giving students a diverse sampling of text where all the kids in all of our classrooms or communities can see themselves in literature or in the nonfiction that they're reading, then we're doing them a disservice because it's almost like we're saying, well, people like you don't read or your stories aren't valuable enough to be represented in stories. And so they're not here, which, I mean, you wouldn't want to read things if your life wasn't valued in terms of the text that you're being exposed to. I really like that sense of of connecting to the text and finding, Mm -hmm. finding a way into the text. And do you, do you think though that that might be one of the main ways that we would help kind of challenge a reader's identity that might be a little more fixed in that kind of struggling or poor category, you know, particularly as they get to be an older teen is, is that a way to challenge it is to provide them with texts that really speak to them as individuals? Um, I would say yes, um, because it's not just your reader identity. Really, I mean, the bigger body of identity research talks about how we're this like intersection of all of our identities, our race, our gender, our religion, social class, all of these things. And so um, I think that one of the best ways to help students um, develop a stronger sense of their reader identity is to help them um, pull on their interests and the different things that they care about and use those to um, kind of leverage their willingness to read texts that they might not normally read or to um, open themselves up to different possibilities. That It's a great tip. I think just opening up to possibilities is a great start. But what other kinds of tips could you give us to help kind of break this barrier of identities and help readers really build their own strong identities as, as an individual reader? Let's see, we talked a little bit about expanding the kind of the diet that students have to choose from in terms of texts. Um, I think asking yourself whether or not you value multiple types of text. So if you're a classroom teacher, do you let students read magazines and nonfiction articles and graphic novels and those sorts of things? Or do you just value the traditional type of you know, novel that you enjoyed as a kid? Um, I think also expanding the way we think about reading, like, do you value audiobooks? Because a lot of kids that struggle, um, they struggle because they get off track or they get distracted. And so if they're reading along with an audiobook, then their eye, when they get distracted and they start thinking about something else, the audio part is pulling them back to the text. And it also helps them visualize what they're reading. And so I think that that, um, that can make a big difference. Um, challenging this idea that we think that... Um, you need to read the book before you can watch the movie because, again, some of these kids, they need the visual. And so if they can visualize that movie star 
playing this part in the book, then a lot of them, you know, they say that they can read it because they can see the parts happening in their head, right? Or they can make up the parts that are different between the movie and the book. And so thinking, realizing that there's not like one right way of reading and helping students learn how to use these strategies that work for them, not just the strategies that work for, not forcing the strategies that work for strong readers on our diverse set of readers. Thank you so much, Dawn. This is a wonderful conversation, and I appreciate all your tips today. Thanks. Dewan Combs is an English professor here at BYU. Now, let's take a trip into the land of stories, and more specifically, sports stories. The World Series starts this week, as any fans of baseball would know, so it's the perfect time to listen to Casey at the Bat by Ernest Thayer. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood 4-2 to two with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could get but a whack at that. They'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a pudding, and the latter was a fake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And then when dust had lifted and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley and it rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt, t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone in the stand. And it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult, and he bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew. But Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud! cried the maddened thousands, and Echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. 
Oh, somewhere in this favored land the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Like Casey at the Bat, some books are timeless and span the generations. We're in studio today with Kathy Newton, a mother, grandmother, and lover of reading, to talk about some of her timeless favorites. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Kathy, my listeners cannot see, but you brought a whole bunch of books with you today, and I, I feel like a kindred spirit because, you know, I would travel with this many books as well. So let's share some of these books that you brought with you today with our listening audience. So where do you want to start? Which one do you want to start with? Pick well, one up and let's let's share. And I'll be honest, I just couldn't walk out the house without bringing books, right, Yay! if we're going to talk about books. So so sitting on the very top is my my own copy of Charlotte's Web. And I will tell my listeners that it is very well worn. The spine is kind of flapping off and it is it is very much uh, dog-eared around the edges. So it looks like it has been well-loved. It, it's been well-loved and it, and it is truly the book I remember being read to as a child. So book about friendship book about courage, a book about life, changes in life. There's just something magical. I mean, I, I've got goosebumps now, just, just, just feeling it. Um, it's just a, it's, it's a read aloud for every child, and every child should n- have that opportunity to hear about Charlotte and Fern and Wilbur and all the animals on the farm. That that is one of those books that I think is part of our children's literature collective consciousness. If it, if there is a classic of children's literature, that is, that is it, yes, and every yes. child should know that book. Yes, yes, and hopefully it opens the door to E. B. White. That once you read Charlotte's Web, then you branch off into one of our true treasures was. E.B. White and his yeah. wife, Catherine. Trumpet of the Swan is still one of my mm-hmm. very favorite books. And I don't think a lot of people know it as much as they know no. Charlotte's Web. But no. be- again, a beautiful book about um, differences and, and how, do we, how do we become uniquely who we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I yes, love it. Yes. Uh, perfect way to start. Yeah, okay. So what are some others? Well, sitting here also is Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. Yay! <laughs> and we'd raised three ch- children and I had every ABC book in the house and our youngest this book came out when she was about three and we used it and used it and used it and it is the best way to learn ABC. It's rhyme, um, it's uh, Bill Martin and it is a fabulous, it's in board format, you name it and it's come out. But Chicka Chicka Boom, How to Learn the ABCs. I I am a rhyming (laughs) snob, I will tell my listeners and one of the the issues I have with a lot of children's um, picture books particularly is that they don't get the rhyme scheme really good Mm -hmm. and that they have, you know, there's some false rhymes and some things where they're pushing it. I'm like, if you're going to rhyme it, just do it well, right? But Chicka Chicka Boom Boom rocks it. Mm -hmm. It, I have no Mm -hmm. issues with the Mm -hmm. rhyme scheme in that book because it is just this wonderful lyrical, it has a very musical musical quality to it. It, it, it very much has this kind of rhythm to it that makes it um, beautifully evocative and a beautiful read aloud and a beautiful learning tool. Yes. Um, another one is Miss Rumpheus by Barbara Cooney. Beautiful. Um, story of a woman who, um, as a child, she was told that her job was to make the world more beautiful. She wanted to travel. She wanted to do all these amazing things and was counseled 
what what can you do to make the world more beautiful? And I think it's a lesson for all of us that we have something to give back in, in our lives and beautiful illustrations. Um, Barbara Cooney was just a, a prolific and beautiful children's author. Yeah. Beautiful illustrations, very realistic, yes. um, mm-hmm. very, they, they kind of give me a sense of impressionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think of kind of Degas-esque, you know, mm-hmm. that very beautiful realism that just brings such a sweet, beautiful spirit to the the text that she's trying to do here as well. Yes. Just this wonderful, beautiful, sweet, um, honest portrayal mm-hmm. of how, how do we make the world better? Yes. Yeah. One yes. of my favorites too. Yes. Yeah. yes. And then there's um, Grandfather's Journey by Alan Say. Beautiful book. Which was a Caldecott honor book. I mean, Caldecott winner. Um, story about an immigrant. Um, this is a story of his grand, of his own father who comes from Japan to this country. And as much as he's happy to be here, he still has one foot in that country. And I think it's a story for our times of our refugees, of people who come here, they want to be here, but part of their heart has been left in someplace else. And I think maybe for all of us, we have... We live in a certain place, but but our hearts can be in other places. It, the illustrations are beautiful. Um, it's a just an absolutely gorgeous book. I love the illustrations in that one particularly because it's a wonderful juxtaposition, in my estimation, of kind of modern American art, but also mm-hmm. a, a, a heritage back to classic Japanese art. Yes, yes. And it, it again it. Through the illustrations, it shows that kind of one foot in each culture mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of sense that we see the traditional Japanese essence as well as the modern American essence that comes from Alan Say. And I, I love that, that when the illustrations are just as evocative of the theme as the text is. And you're right. Uh, even more timely today than when it was published because of our immigrant populations, our refugee populations. And it's his real story. I mean, he's written many things and this, this is, this is it. I think that's one of the things that I recommend to is, is find an illustrator or an author that you like and read that because the, Finding someone that you just love, those passionate about, finding that one book like Chicka Chicka Boom Boom that you love, that you're going to read over and over again, but finding those authors or illustrators that you also love, that you're then going, um, that you're then going to connect with. I know one of your other favorites um, is Dawn and Audrey Wood. Um, why Why do you like the Woods? They're just fun. Their their illustrations are very different, and sometimes you know you've got Don as the illustrator, and sometimes Audrey as the illustrator. Um, they're just whimsical. They're fun. They understand children. They understand funny bone how to make how to make children laugh, and yet frequently there's an underlying message, a wonderful a wonderful message to them. Yeah. And what you just said a minute ago. I mean, don't we as adults? We find an author that we love, and we read through everything yeah. she's written. And I think children like that same thing, yeah. that you, you find one book, go pick out everything yeah. else that that person is, has written, which is why children like series, okay? Yeah. They read the first book in a series, and um, they want to just – read everything that that author has, yeah. has done. And I think that's a great thing to do. I think that's a great thing. I I also see here on the table, you have Kevin Hankus. Yes. He is another yes. one of my favorites. Yes. Yes. You, you brought today Julius, the baby of the world, but you you probably have already read a lot of other Hankus' stuff. So what do you love about Kevin Hankus? Well, particularly Julius, baby of the world. There's a new baby. And these are these are mouse. These are mice. Yeah. And um, 
everything's fine until that new baby comes and the new baby starts to get attention. If I could give one book to a new baby, to a family with a new baby <laughs> yes. coming in, yeah. because the little mouse says how she feels, that yeah. here's this Julius and he's he's interrupting her life. Everything, she's she's very against her new little baby brother until someone else speaks up about him and makes a, a disparaging comment. And then suddenly she's his fiercest defender. Yeah. And isn't that so true with our children, that they can fight and have disagreements. But if someone from the outside yeah. says one thing, then our children become the defender. So yeah. it's, he, oh, he's just, he, you laugh out loud with him and he's yeah. so real. And he talks about such real situations yeah. that children find themselves in. When I talk about children's books, one of the things that I think is so important is the child's point of view. Yes. And that's really what makes a children's books to me. And Kevin Hankus has got that nailed. Yes, he does. He really brings that wonderful innocence and essence of childhood um, to a very raw and real place that is humorous and fun and delightful and playful at the same time. Um, he just he has that he has that child point of view. He just does nailed. in his illustrated books yeah. as well as his novels yeah. for yeah. children. He he gets he gets kids as, yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and on that wonderful note, we will end our conversation. Thank you for all of these great titles. And I hope that our listeners run out and, and find a new favorite that that they had never heard of before. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. Thank you. Kathy Newton is a member of the Granite School District's Education Foundation Board and an advocate for children's literacy. Next, we sent our student production assistant into our BYU campus to hear the elementary education experiences of some of our college students. Let's take a listen. This is Natalie Anderson outside of the Harold B. Lee Library, just talking to some people about their opinions on books. First off, what was your favorite book when you were in elementary school? The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's a classic, yeah. I'd have to say the Junie B. Jones series, if you've ever read those, I was obsessed. <laughs> the Giving Tree. Ooh, there was a book about a boy and his mom, and the mom always says, like, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, forever and ever, my baby you'll be, or whatever. I like that one. I don't remember what it's called. <sighs> That's a hard question. So I think my favorite book, like, in elementary school was probably the first Harry Potter book. That just was the book that defined my childhood. <laughs> what is your favorite book now? Most recent book I read was The House of the Scorpion. My favorite book now um, would be Mistborn. It's by Brandon Sanderson. What was your favorite subject in elementary school? I think science. My favorite subject would be probably art was my favorite. When you were in elementary school, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an opera singer, actually. Originally, I wanted to be an engineer and design theme parks. I was very ambitious. I wanted to be on American Idol or be an actress, like literally every occupation. <laughs> a pilot was probably the most consistent one. So, as an ambitious kindergartner, I wanted to be a bus driver. Has that changed? What do you want to be when you grow up now? I learned that I didn't enjoy math a ton, so I decided to kind of rethink what I wanted to do, and now I want to um, own my own business, and currently I'm studying entrepreneurship. I'm thinking something in the business world. Now, as an ambitious college student, I want to do nonprofit and work with Mothers Without Borders and helping kids without mothers. Is the movie ever better than the book? Never. Literally never. 
No, yeah, I can't think of an example where that's the case. <laughs> I think the movie and book Aragon speak for themselves in that. They both, well, looks okay. The movie's terrible. I love the book. The movie was so bad. Hmm, <laughs> I don't think so. I feel like it kind of puts limits on it, you know? Like, when you're reading a book, you're just kind of created in your mind. Whereas a movie, I feel like it's it's always going to be restrictive a little bit on your imagination. So I'm going to say no. I would say for the most part no, unless it's a very bad book. <laughs> if you could be any character in any fictional world or book series or movie, what would you be? I'd want to be a princess, but they all have terrible things happen to them. Yeah, but in the end, in right? the, I guess that's true. I'd just be Ariel then, swimming around and walking around. Maybe I'd want to be Nancy Drew, actually. Oh, solid. Yeah, she's very smart and, like, feminist. This is going to be, like, the nerdiest thing I've ever said, but, like, I'd just be want to be, like, one, not the main character, but, like, one of the Dragon Rider elves from Aragon. That would be my dream. Superman. Easily. I think I would choose to be Bilbo Baggins. I just love, kind of, his character arc through The Hobbit and just his journey and adventure. It was a lot of fun and it kind of built him as a character and it was nice. I always find it a pleasure to be able to talk with authors and to share their stories, both written and personal. Today, we're on the phone with award-winning author Andrea Davis-Pinkney. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. Nice to be here. Oh, I am so honored and excited to talk to you today and to share your insights about your work. And is this, is, is this something you started out doing as, as a child when you, when you were a young girl? Did you, did you want to write? Was this your passion? Uh, let, let me say to anybody who's listening to this, I was a terrible student. I mean, I was a good person, but um, I really struggled in school. And um, thankfully, my dad in the second grade gave me a notebook. And he said, I want you to write everything that's important to you in this notebook. Write about your cat, uh, Mickey. Write about your dog. Write about your little sister, your little brother. Write about things that make you happy and sad and excited excited and nervous and angry. And that was the beginning. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was becoming a writer because that notebook allowed me to express how I felt and what made me happy and excited. Um, and when I was in the sixth grade, I run, won a writing contest at my school. And then I knew I really enjoyed doing this. It's funny. The prize uh, for winning the writing contest was that I got to take my whole family out to the Red Lobster restaurant and I remember just feeling great. I remember feeling like I can now feed my whole family with my writing. <laughs> and it's something I still do to this day. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is a great thing to see yourself as a writer and to be able to to have that identity. But there probably were some challenges along the way. So what are some of those things that were challenging for you as you develop this identity as a writer? Well, uh, one of the, uh, I guess, great realities of being a writer is that one has to be very vulnerable. I have to be willing to kind of 
you know, bare my soul, if you will, even when I'm writing about other people because I'm kind of putting my myself out there. Um, and then there's the other fact that everything I think of or write doesn't get published. So uh, there's rejection out there. You know, I, um, you know, write things over and over. I can write something 10 times. I can work on something for a decade. I can struggle with it. And it's still in a file and has never seen the light of day. So um, it's interesting because as a writer, I write daily. Um, People say, do you write when you don't feel like writing? Do you write when you don't feel well? Do you write when your house is a mess? You know, do you write when you're waiting for the guy to come and fix the boiler? You know, yes, 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 and yes. And that's a challenge. I don't always love to do it, but I do it. It's like working out. It's like being an athlete. I have to kind of be in the constant pursuit of the training, if you will. And sometimes that ain't always easy. (laughs) It's so true. It isn't always easy. And I love sharing that, particularly with our children listeners, because sometimes they see a book and they think, oh, this book came formed just like this, and it was easy, and it was simple. But it, it isn't always. There's joys and there's struggles. So particularly with a poem for Peter, was there anything that was really exciting or something wonderful that happened during the creation of that book? Well, um, I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, young people and folks feeling like a book just kind of arrived. I typically write a manuscript 10 times. I, I do up to 10 revisions on a picture book before I really get it right. In the case of a poem for Peter, um, the excitement came when I decided that I was going to create Ezra's story in the third person and Peter's story kind of in the first person as if I'm speaking to Peter. And when I finally realized that those two kind of parallel narratives were going to exist like a duet, like two two people singing in harmony. And when I figured that out, that these kind of two braided narratives would work together again as as two voices coming together, then I got really excited and it started to take form. I I really do love that about a poem for Peter, this kind of interconnectedness that it has, because I think it really shows that creative process of the the author as a voice for the character, but also the character as a voice for the author. And I love that sense that you you bring to that through through that braided narrative. Do you feel that way as as you're writing? Do you feel like you're being a voice for some of these wonderful people that you're writing about and that you're offering something of yourself in return? Well, it's interesting. I really believe that, you know, books have a a heart and soul and voice and life of their own. And I sometimes really feel like I am just a vehicle. Uh, I feel like a character, a narrative, an approach is almost whispering to me, uh, telling me how I should tell this story. And I, I think that books again, have their own wisdom, and that they are smarter than we are sometimes. I I feel like it's, again, I am the vehicle telling the story, and uh, the book is what ultimately is the, uh, I I guess, example of that. I think that is a wonderful combination of how this all works together. Another portion of this, particularly with your books, is there is also an artist that's involved in creating their own voice. So how does that work for you, particularly as you're working with artists? And how, how do you work with them to help 
their voice come out as well as your voice come out and the voice of of the people you're telling their story about? Um, You know, it's so interesting. Most people don't realize that authors and illustrators do not collaborate. We don't hang out at Starbucks. Um, We don't talk about the work. It is the job of the editor and the publishing company to keep those individuals separate. So in the case of A Poem for Peter, Steve Johnson, Lou Fancher, the husband and wife, uh, illustrators of that book, I never conversed with them. I didn't speak to them. I did get a sneak peek of some of the sketches, but I really had no say in it. Um, I've got a unique situation because I am married to a children's book illustrator. Um, But even with the case of myself and my husband, Brian Pinckney, his studio is not in our home. It's in a completely different neighborhood. I don't go there. I don't peek in the window. I don't ask him what he's doing. I don't see that artwork being created. I see it when it's finished uh, and it's about to be Uh, sent to the publisher. So I really have no say. It seems counterintuitive, but there's a very good reason why authors and illustrators are kept separate. And that's because an illustrator should feel free to think of something I would never think of. Uh, In the case of a book that I wrote, um, a picture book biography on Ella Fitzgerald, if you look at the cover of that book, it's illustrated by my husband, Brian, and it's Ella Fitzgerald coming out of the front of that book. She looks like a big balloon in the Macy's Day Parade. Her skirt is like a big globe with buildings from all over the world of where she visited and toured. Had I tried to tell my husband what I wanted, he never would have thought of that. So I really just let the artists do what they what comes to them creatively. And I love that in the end, this all becomes just a beautiful collaboration that everybody has their own voice and everybody brings their own unique character to the work. And then together, it it takes on a life as a life as its own, as you said. It's true. Yeah. When you're doing all of this work, what what are some of the challenges that you face? What are some of the most difficult things that you find about writing? I think the most difficult thing that I find about writing is how am I going to tell this story? How am I going to convey a lot of facts? And a lot of my books are historical in nature. They involve a lot of fact checking. They involve a lot of uh, you know resource material and, and correctness, if you will, in terms of the content and what's true and what's not true. And how that's a challenge. How am I going to pack a bunch of facts into a book for young people that is interesting. You know, when I go visit classrooms, which I do really all over the globe, I will ask students, how many of you really love nonfiction and very few hands go up? How many of you don't like nonfiction? And a lot of the hands go up. And I say, why don't you like nonfiction? And they say things like, it's like yucky spinach. You know, people feel that books that have factual material, it's like eating something that's good for you but doesn't taste good. So one of my challenges as an author of that kind of informational book, how am I going to make it taste good? How am I going to make it yummy to young readers? And uh, that's where the many revisions come in. 
Well, and I also think one of the ways you do that is your beautiful use of language. I love how you use alliteration and other forms of figurative language that bring that sense of the poetic as well as just the sense of poetic words that may be more in prose that you just you bring this beautiful sense of language is is that something that you're really tied into do you love words and and playing with them is that something that has always been a part of how you write I do and reading should be a fun experience I listen to a lot of music uh, I go to a lot of theater and I listen to the language of the script uh, and one of the beauties of living in New York City, which I do, is that I'm often on the subway or kind of on the sidewalks, and I'm hearing people speaking and uh, expressing themselves in so many different ways, and that's really just my big inspiration. I love that, just soaking up the world around you and pulling in all of that wonderful inspiration. When you have children read your works, what, what is the inspiration that you hope that, that they will take away from your works? My real hope is that young people will read the books and be able to share them. You know, one of the things I've learned is that if you're a person, a child, who may not like to read a lot of words or read a lot of books, you can take it in small chunks. And a lot of my books, as you mentioned, have what I am striving for, which is this lyrical narrative. And my hope is that maybe through that vehicle, they'll be able to pass along to another friend, hey, did you know about Ezra Jack Keats? Did you know about uh, Ella Fitzgerald or Duke Ellington or Sojourner Truth? And the other thing I've learned is that, uh, or that I hope, is that they will take in the visuals because there is something known as visual literacy, and that is reading. That counts as reading. Looking at the pictures counts as reading. So by virtue of the narrative and the, the uh, visuals, my hope is that they'll come away knowing something that they may not have known before, even if it's a small little bit of information. And I want to remind young people and families that reading is something that can be done together and that reading a book with mom or dad or whoever, uh, caregiver, sister, brother, um, classmate, friend, teacher, it's really fun. Reading is fun. And it should be. And you make it so, particularly nonfiction. Your nonfiction isn't spinach. It's chocolate cake. Oh, thank you, Rachel. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your graciousness today. It has been a sh wonderful honor to speak with you. Yes, thank you, Rachel. Andrea Davis-Pitney is a wonderful award-winning author, and it has been my honor to talk with her today. Now, before I leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table to talk with other librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. We have had Emily and Taylor on before to discuss editing and some of their pet peeves about plot. Today, we continue that discussion as it relates to characters. For me, like character is the central thing. It's the biggest. Yeah, mm -hmm. to me, it's the biggest thing, right? And I think particularly for children and teen readers, if they don't connect to the characters, they don't connect to the book, right? That that characters are just so important. So, what? Let's start out with maybe just some great examples of, of what are some great characters that you guys have connected to to in books that you've read. 
I think this is my, my go-to. And I think it's one of my go-to books because of this reason. Very cool. I really love Edenbrook. Um, and Juliana Donaldson, I think, yes. is the author. And people might think it's sappy and you can see the ending from a mile away. But I love Marianne. She is a character that I love and I connected to right away. And I might admit she might be one of those stock characters with that the girl that – that doesn't care what people think about. She's a little bit klutzy. She she doesn't waver from her morals or ideals for that of others or what she thinks is popular or what she thinks that people will like. But I think that is something that girls want to grab onto. Be like, I, and I think about Ella Enchanted as well. Definitely, She is an independent, strong woman, but she isn't, maybe doesn't have all the the glamour that everybody else has, but is okay with that. She's okay with who she is. And maybe there's a little bit of her finding that throughout the story, but I love that. And they're funny. Yeah. They have to be funny and witty. That is so important mm-hmm. that they are a witty character. <laughs> Cause I'm like, mm, I, that wasn't funny. Or like, the, I was like, you know, got that out of a knock, knock joke. Like, I don't, like, I don't know, like a joke book. Like, yeah, I, and I think for me that that really is a sense of realism to it, right? Mm-hmm. And even characters that aren't real, like when I think about fantasy and we think about, you know, characters like elves and, you know, goblins and those types of things that aren't actually real, they still have to have that realism to them. And those kinds of emotions and things that you're talking about are the types of things that make characters really real to me, right? That That's the thing I love about it, that that kind of emotionality of the character that we know that they're going to act in the right way and that they're going to be the right kind mm-hmm. of person. That's the, that's the kind of character I connect to. And although I might yeah. think that it might be a stock character, I think that in order to create that character, you have to be different in every way. There's yeah. nothing that's going to be similar yeah. and people are going to find that and it's not going to be real and you're not going to yeah. have created that character. If it's something that they saw coming or they didn't think was natural or real to that person, it takes a lot of work to create yeah. that kind of character. Well, I think that's true of a lot of writers and maybe even some genres because I, I talk to people a lot about romance and romance is like the same plot over and over, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> there, there is no new plot in romance. It's all been written. But there are new characters, it's right? The characters. It's then the characters that make that difference. And it's that kind of nuance. And most of them, you know, particularly in mainstream, you know, young adult romance, you know, you've got your pl- your you've got your love triangle. You've got you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know who you yeah. know who fills each role, right? It's 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 not a big I you know big surprise. Yeah. You know that there's these different kinds of things, and they're they're all filling the same role. But it's those nuances that make them each different that mm-hmm. give them that kind of depth. I mean, what would you agree with that, Taylor? Do you think that it's that nuance that adds to characters? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I loved Ellen Enchanted as a kid, and I think it was because I saw her strength and determination even though you know she has this curse of obedience on her she still um like she she didn't subject her will to other people's and that was something that I could relate to and I I wanted to become and um I think there are these stock characters but the the nuances um are what people different people can relate to well, and there's hits and misses, I think, mm, that I yeah. think that had to take a lot of time. Was Ella Enchanted, Gail Carlson, the yeah. first yes. book? Yes, yeah. And I could tell, yeah. maybe she put so much more yeah. time into that, maybe. And I don't want to bash on this <laughs> at all, but the, her newest book, The Lost Princess, The Lost oh, Kingdom yeah. of Bamar, mm-hmm. I not, did not, not quite get that the same, same I agree. connection. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think 
mainly it was a lack of the character development. That romance was way too fast. Every And I think that she tried to almost have that kind of same character with, I don't even, see, I don't even yeah. remember her, her name. name. <laughs> that shows I don't even yeah, remember yeah, her name. Yeah. But I, and she wanted to have a strong, independent person. She was a little less, like, she was a little more socially awkward yeah. because of where she came from. I think you just lost that. And mm. maybe it was because it was rushed or she didn't take as much time. I don't know. Well, and that, that to me is one of the most important things for characters is what I would call an emotional arc, right? Because mm-hmm. a character for me has to, in order for it to be a good story, they have to go through some kind of change and they have to go through some kind of progression. And that might not be natural in like real life. I mean, it you know, we might not all change in 280 pages or this experience <laughs> might not make us better people or, you know, anything like that. But in a story, it has to happen, right? Yeah. You have to be better. And the character well, has to be... The story has to be worth telling. Yes. yes. So you, yeah. If it's a Way story worth that. telling, yeah. someone's yeah. going to change. Someone's yeah. going to be better because yeah. of it. The reader is going to be better yes. because of it. Yes. And that is part of it, right? And so when, for me, when a character doesn't change or there's no emotional change at the mm-hmm. end or if it comes too quickly right it's just like oh I had this life altering experience and I'm a new woman right <laughs> like, I didn't feel that yeah. I didn't feel yeah. that from you <laughs> it's like, wait a minute I, would that really have happened that quickly you know maybe yeah. if you're like a saint or something you know and you have a miraculous experience you would be totally changed but that's what gets in my way with characters is like you didn't change you didn't you didn't evolve right that evolution is a huge part of what characters mean to me you mentioned earlier what you liked in characters are there flaws yeah so yeah what about that what about character flaws Um, so one of my favorite books of all time (laughs) is fangirl by Rainbow oh, Rowell. Oh, that's a wonderful My book. Yeah, really likes that one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, it's, it's, I need it, to talk to him. About yeah, it's a very good thing. Um, the main character, Kath, um, has, like, severe social anxiety, and um, I just, I relate so much to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess you could say one of her flaws is that, like, she doesn't go out of her way to try things. But as the story progresses and as she has to go through these changes, she starts putting herself out more and starts, like, realizing she can't live this way. And um, she becomes this person who, you know, still has struggles and still is kind of awkward and still is anxious all the time. But she is able to kind of overcome those weaknesses and not put so much stock in them Mm. and realize that she has much more strength than she originally thought she did. Um, And that's something that I really relate to. (laughs) And yeah, I think flaws are so important to have in your characters because if, if you just have this like perfect person, (laughs) where can the story go? (laughs) I think it's also really hard to introduce. It takes patience and a lot of rewriting and editing to create natural flaws Mm -hmm. i think in characters as well like i mentioned earlier i hate it when characters are just stupid like conflict has to come out of a poor decision yeah or something bad just happening to them but Mm -hmm. if you have too much just bad happening then it doesn't seem real yeah. yeah but they need to make realistic poor decisions yeah that we yeah. see in flaws in ourselves not just like wow you are a really stupid person <laughs> sorry <laughs> well, the, no, the... no i mean and, but that might be true of the character too because you know th- there are people that just make really that, yeah. that is know, true but that has to be the nature of the character right yes. so it has to be it has to be that connection right it has mm-hmm. the flaws have to be natural to the character 
as the characters presented. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of the reasons why I love that book so much is just it just feels so real. Like these are these are real human problems that people experience, and that's what I think is one of the things I love about reading so much is finding these real human flaws and developments that I, you know, I can apply that to my own life and I can, I feel the same things that these people are feeling. And you get to watch that change. Like yeah. Rachel was talking Over time. About. Yeah. Cause I mean, again, that in the end, that's what literature is all about, right? Mm-hmm. It's about us experiencing empathetic growth through other people's problems and yeah. other people's movement. And, and that's fundamentally in the end, what characters are all about in a book. I love it. Thank you so much, ladies, for breaking this down for us today. I'd like to thank Emily and Taylor for joining me around the librarian's table today to talk about characters in books. And thanks to all my guests who joined us today. We've talked with English professor Dwan Combs about helping children form identities as readers. We talked with Kathy Newton about some of her timeless favorites. And our last guest was Andrea Davis Pinckney, and we talked about her journey as a writer. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Tanner Rall. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.